If a brand starts to tell you what you are not allowed to do to make someone else happy, someone that you care about, then the brand's role in your company has gotten out of control. We can't let self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving the people around us the things that will bring them the most joy. This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Will Gadara. Will is a hospitality and restaurateur icon and the author of the best-selling book, Unreasonable Hospitality. He's the former co-owner of 11 Madison Park, which under his leadership was named the number one restaurant in the world in 2017. He's also the co-founder of the Welcome Conference and the founder of Thank You, a hospitality consulting company. Hey, Will, welcome to Brand Story. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to connect with you. Yeah, this is so cool. And uh, we were talking right before we started recording about I had sent a story in, you're doing the unreasonable hospitality in the world, and I'd sent a story in about one of my experiences waiting tables, and I can't thank you enough for using it and putting it out there in the world. That was really special for me. Man, it was it was such a good one and obviously reminded me so much of, of the hot dog story, but also just encapsulated for me, and, and by the way, that like reading that story from you made me excited to be on this podcast with you because it showed the extent to which we're like-minded and you could, you could hear through the beautiful way in which you recounted it that yes, obviously it brought that kid a ton of joy, but that it brought you perhaps even more joy, which is for me, one of the things I, I try to scream from the mountaintops that hospitality is a selfish pleasure if approached in the right way. And so it was fun to share and it's fun to connect with you now. Yeah, it really is, man. Like your book has meant so much to me because I feel like it, you put into words and put out there into the world so many things that I hold really close and that I really believe and are at the core of all the things I've done in my career, even though I'm not in the hospitality industry. So I can't tell you how much I love your book. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, I mean, it's spectacular. It really is. You know, and on its face, it's of course about hospitality and service. And I think some people might see it and be like, oh, well, this is about the restaurant world. Maybe this doesn't apply to me. Quite frankly, I think it's one of the best leadership and brand experience books I've ever read. And I think there any company could learn so much from this. Thank you for those words. I don't, I don't take it for granted, sincerely. Thank you. You're so welcome, man. Like I, your book really touched me. And it's one of the only business books that at the beginning I got kind of choked up reading it. I think it's a very personal book for you. You know, you read a lot of business books and you can tell it's, you know, someone's got a system or they've got a thing, they've got an approach they really want to sell, you know? And this is, I, 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 you know, I would guess this is more of a mission and more of a way of being for you. So can you tell me a little bit, this started so young for you. Can you tell me about growing up in a house full of, you know, your mom and dad being in a hospitality and what that set you up for? You know, it's interesting because, yeah, my mom was a flight attendant for American Airlines and my dad was running restaurants since, you know, his entire career. Um, and so in that sense, from an early age, I was surrounded by two parents in hospitality, albeit from different perspectives. But that was all before I actually remember anything. It, my memory really starts once my mom was already sick. And I talk about this in the book, how she, would di- she was diagnosed with brain cancer and... Um, ultimately became a quadriplegic and um, that 
experience and my dad's reaction, which prompted my reaction, I, I really do believe is where I originally fell in love with hospitality. You know, A, watching my dad and the examples he set, he was in the restaurant business, so working 14-hour days, and yet still taking care of my mother every day, which means getting her out of bed, showering her, putting her in her wheelchair, feeding her breakfast, getting her ready for the day, leaving for work, doing the whole thing in reverse when he got home, and still also being a good dad to me. Um, and yet, in that experience, well, A, I was in awe of him, or at least in hindsight, I'm in awe of him for how he handled it. But never once did he feel bad for himself and his reaction, not dissimilar to I'm a dad now. And when my two-year-old falls, if I say, oh my gosh, are you okay? Then she knows that she hurt herself. If I'm like, babe, you're good. Then she's not actually, you know, um, I never even for a moment thought I should feel bad for myself. And in fact, both of us ultimately to the contrary, although Obviously, if we could go back and wave a wand and my mom never was sick, we would. But we both derived pleasure out of caring for her. Um, I watched the extent to which, even in moments of frustration, like he, he loved taking care of her, and I did too. As perverse as it might sound, I looked at my friends and how their parents always, their moms always doted on them and didn't feel bad for myself. I just kind of celebrated the fact that I was the only one that got to really take care of my mom. And so like, yeah, like my early stories are not like, you know, I fell in love with hospitality because we had family around the table and like, you know, Sunday saw supper. It was, it was this different approach to it. Yeah. It's really intimate. It's very one you know, one size fits one, really. It's about caring for another human being in a really personal, very up-close way, which I think likely informed how you approach caring for customers and caring for workers and caring for people around you. So it does seem like it was very formative. I mean, like, how can it not be? But I think that's beautiful what you took away from it. And I, I think that approach is just amazing. That, that reminds me of something from the book that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about because I just thought it was so inspiring. And it kind of starts with a quote of yours, you know, make magic in a world that desperately needs more of it. And it was the story, you know, and I got very choked up reading about your experience with your mom. And then when she passed and you were about to leave the country to study and you and your dad had this opportunity to go to a very famous restaurant invited by the chef and you went because, you know, it was a thing to do with your dad. Can you just ta unpack that a little bit for me? Because I think that taught you some things about experience and how much it can mean to others. Yeah. You know, one of the things I talk about often is that in order to be successful as an individual and then as a leader, you need to take the time to name for yourself why your work matters, the myriad ways you have to impact other people significantly. And then once you have, make sure you share that with your team because I don't care how much you love your job, sometimes work just sucks. And if you don't believe with every ounce of your being that the work actually matters, that you do genuinely have the ability to impact people, it's hard to bring 
your most fully realized self to the work on those hard days. Um, and listen, I believe there is nobility in serving people. Um, I believe we can help people celebrate some of the most important moments of their lives. But the story I'm about to tell really helps to explain why we can do so much more than help people celebrate. When I was in college, perhaps my favorite course was this thing called Guest Chefs, which was a class where a famous chef would come up and all of us in the class would help that chef effectively open a restaurant for a night. And we would serve the public and it was a whole thing. And I was lucky enough um, when I did it to have Daniel Balud as the chef. And Danielle is one of the great chefs in the world, one of the most impactful chefs, all of this. And I became very close with him that week because my responsibility was to entertain him and his sous chefs. And, and I did the job well. I made sure they had a very good time coming back to a college town. To the point where the night after the dinner, we ended up having a big keg party at my house on College Avenue. And Danielle was serving people caviar and um, I think for a few hours he felt like he was in college again, or honestly for him, perhaps the first time he felt, he felt the love I was trying to extend to him and said, Hey, if you're ever in New York, please come to my restaurant. I did have plans to go to Spain after I graduated. Um, I won't go into all the details. I'll make the story take too long, but my mother ended up passing away the day after I graduated and I was scheduled to go to Spain to, to work a week later and I almost canceled and my dad encouraged me to go saying I could always come back if it just wasn't working. My flight to Spain was out of New York. He lived in Boston at the time. And so he was bringing me to New York to send me off. And I decided like, Hey, this might be the perfect time to go to Danielle to take him up on that invitation because you know, one of the, the lines that a guest of mine once said that I'll always keep with me, and it's also in the book, is drink your best bottles of wine on your worst days, not on your best days. Um, I think we have an unhealthy relationship with celebration where we choose only to celebrate when things are great. Um, as opposed to recognizing that, like, yeah, if your day's already great, you don't need a great bottle of wine. Like, if your day is bad, use the great bottle of wine to even it out. And so my dad and I went to Danielle the day before I left for Spain and we walked in and they walked us through the bar and through the dining room to the small room with one table overlooking the kitchen um, and proceeded to send us 12, 15, some crazy number of courses of food. And Danielle himself spieled every single course. The general manager waited on us. At the end of the night, there was no check. The reason this story was so impactful to me was that a, I was just a college kid. I had nothing to offer Danielle. And yet he saw something in me that he believed in and decided to lead with generosity. He is one of the most generous people I've known. And that did not change whatsoever as he became more and more successful. And that's inspired me to want to do the same for others. But also that he created the conditions within the walls of that restaurant such that in the midst of one of the most sad seasons of our lives, that was truly one of the best nights of our lives. And so I say that there's nobility in service because you can help people celebrate, but there's also nobility in service because you can give people the grace of only for a few hours to forget about 
the most difficult things in their lives and reconnect with the things that are the most beautiful. Because listen, as sad as I was to have lost my mother, that night, instead of mourning her loss, we got to celebrate her life and the fact that we still had one another. And I think that's a beautiful example of a magical world. And by the way, I don't believe that creating magical worlds like that are limited to restaurants alone. I think everyone in their own small way can create the conditions wherein people can come together and more genuinely connect in some way, shape or form. I couldn't agree more, my friend. That's just amazing. You know, I was, I started before, you know, being in marketing and brand, I was a theater director. So when I would direct plays, I was always thinking about just creating a space for the people that are coming to see the play to just have a moment to where sometimes it's relief. Sometimes it's just catharsis. Sometimes it's, you never know what's going on with people. So try to create a very special space where they don't have to think about anything for two hours. You know, it's a gift you can give people and you can do it in so many ways. So let me fast forward a little bit and talk to you about 11 Madison Park. And I know you know, there are probably people listening in our audience that don't know what 11 Madison Park is. If you're a foodie, you definitely do. I've known what, it, what, what your restaurant is for years and years. But it's a remarkable story. You took over this restaurant. And then I'm really interested in you weaving in how you go from the sort of middling restaurant to the first time you went to the ceremony for the top 50 restaurants. And then how that experience really propelled I think everything to maybe this day. So can you unpack that a little for me? Yeah. You know, I, when we got to the restaurant, um, cause I worked there for years before I bought it. Um, it was a middling brasserie. Um, food was good, but not significant. The service was friendly, but not all that technically proficient, but the room, Man, the room was and still is one of the most beautiful dining rooms in the world. And we had this collective vision to make the experience within that room live up to the room itself. Other, other way to say it, we had a vision to make the restaurant just better. And I think anytime you're focusing on, on making something better, you do what is obvious. You focus on excellence. And we pursued excellence with reckless abandon less tables so we could serve a better experience to, to fewer people, new team, better, fancier china, glassware, silverware, better ingredients, more focus on technique, training, 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 training. And it worked. You know, we went from two New York Times stars to three to four. We went from zero Michelin stars ultimately to three. We're feeling ourselves pretty hard. <laughs> I bet. And then, and then one day I walked into the restaurant, I was doing my morning routine and going through the mail and I opened up a letter from the 50 best restaurants. Um, and I opened it up and it said, congratulations, you've been added to the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world. Come to London in June for the ceremony. Obviously I did. The ceremony itself is not dissimilar to the Oscars in the sense that you put on your fanciest tuxedo. It's in this larger than life room. You're in that room with uh, all these people that you've been wanting to meet your entire career. Um, but it's dissimilar from the Oscars in one significant way. At the Oscars, if you're nominated, when they get to your category, you're desperate that they call your name here. If you're there, you know you're one of the top 50. You just don't know where on the list you fall into. You get there, they sort of 50, they count down to one. There, you are desperate that they do not call your name for as long as humanly possible. I like to gamify pretty much everything in life. Um, I think it's a superpower as a leader. 
don't care what you do. It's more fun to play than it is to work. If you can make work here more like a game, that will never steer you wrong. But I do like to gamify everything. And so with our assigned seating, I was trying to guess based on where we were sitting relative to where the people that had come in like number one through five um, the year before we're seeing where we're going to fall. And I think I guess number 35. And then the guy starts the countdown. He goes, at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> I bet. Um, now, what I, what I realized very quickly is the assigned seating has nothing to do with where you fall on the list. Yeah, and right. so that they can hammer on you and project your image in front of the entire room. Which wow. again was filled with heroes, and I looked like I'd just gotten kicked in the groin. Um, you know, like a very professional, mature individual in a moment of profound disappointment, I left the party early and went back to the hotel and started <laughs> drinking. Um, going through the stages of grief and anger. We yeah. sat on anger, and you know what? We sat on anger, and this is something I actually believe in. I didn't lean into this as much as I probably should have in the book. Um, we spend a lot of time these days talking about emotions and healthy emotions and how to channel the right emotions and all of that is, is appropriate and important. Um, anger is not a bad thing when used in the right way. We shouldn't sit in anger. We shouldn't indulge it for too long, but A, we can't pretend it doesn't exist. That's unhealthy. And B, it's, it's a waste to not feel it when we feel it because we can use it to push us forward and to fuel our competitiveness. But once you feel it, once you sit completely in whatever emotion you're feeling, then you move on to the next one. And ultimately we got to acceptance because here's the thing. It's patently absurd to say the one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world. What that list acknowledges is the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants at any given time. Um, I don't know about you, when I want to accomplish something, I look at the people that have accomplished it before me, study them, learn what I can from them, make it my own and, and approach it accordingly. And when I looked at the restaurants that had become number one on that list, they were chefs. They were unreasonable in pursuit of the product. Um, that night on a cocktail napkin, I wrote two things. We will be number one because I believe you can talk things into existence and you need to be willing to say your most audacious goals out loud if you ever want to have a chance to achieve them. But a goal without a strategy is nothing more than a pipe dream. And so underneath that, I wrote what our strategy was going to be. If they were unreasonable in pursuit of product, I was going to be unreasonable in pursuit of people. And so I wrote unreasonable hospitality. And, and that moment, although it wasn't like that happened and then we were to the moon, then it took years figure out exactly what that meant but that was truly the starting point that's that is just so inspiring and such i think an important story for anyone that has the natural ups and downs of trying to build anything you know and then you know yeah you i i love that you sat with the anger and then came up with a strategy and then i think it took you a good 10 years after that of just hard work investigation probably failure some wins and some fails and just that sort of, you know, you have to get mad at it sometimes and keep going. Well, anytime you're trying to do something unique or impactful or innovative or new, I mean, like, think of it like this. If you're, if you're wandering through a forest that doesn't yet have paths, you're going to get lost occasionally. Sure. But we got there. Yeah, got you there. got there. So 
uh, it's an amazing accomplishment. Um, and I love that you came at it from the human point of view instead of just the food. Because the food is obviously exceptional. But what you all do transcends that and goes into experience, which is why I think your book is the best brand experience book I've ever read. And you tell a story in it that I connected with immediately, similar similar to the story that, that I submitted to your, you know, unreasonable hospitality in the world. You tell the hot dog story, which has become very famous. I think a lot of our listeners maybe haven't heard it. And I think it was pivotal in a way. It was totally pivotal. I mean, you know, after we got back from the 50 best, we started like exploring what unreasonable hospitality meant. And that, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of collaboration with the team, understanding that my role as a leader was to set the vision, but it was our collective responsibility to figure out how to navigate our way towards it. Um, we explored every single touch point in the guest experience. We interrogated the experience to understand it completely such that we could, in isolating every single interaction, then figure out how to elevate as many of them as possible, kind of channeling the idea of marginal gains that if you, if you increase every part of it just slightly, the overall impact is transformational, not to mention the fact that if you can find touch points in the experience that no one else has ever paused for long enough to consider and just make them a little bit more awesome. It gives you an unfair competitive advantage. But then one day I found myself in the dining room on a busier than normal lunch service. And, um, I was helping the servers and I was clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies who were on vacation to New York just to eat at restaurants. Um, and they were actually on their way to the airport to head back home after their meal. And I heard them just talking about all the restaurants they'd eaten at, per se, Danielle, La Bardadan, Momofuku, now 11 Madison Park. But then a woman at the table jumped in and said, yeah, you know what? We never had a New York City hot dog from one of the street carts. And it was like one of those light bulb moments. Um, so I ran back into the kitchen, um, put on, like dropped the plates, ran outside, got a hot dog, ran back inside. I was joked that I had to figure out how to convince the chef to serve it in our fancy restaurant, um, but eventually got him to. And we cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces, added a little swish of ketchup and a swish of mustard, basically made it look super fancy, some sauerkraut relish. And then before their final savory course, which was at the time a honey lavender glazed duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, I brought out what we in New York call a dirty water dog. Um, and I explained it. I said, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. Here's that New York City hot dog. And they freaked out. I mean, like freaked out. It, and it was, a, it was a moment of revelation for me because I'd served so much food over the course of my career. Wagyu beef and lobster and caviar and foie gras. And I'd never seen anyone react to anything I'd served them like they did to that hot dog. Now... It was a pivotal moment, not because it happened, but because I paused to consider what, in, what went into making it happen and then put a system behind it to ensure that that would continue to happen. And I think that's a really important distinction because I always say athletes go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they did wrong. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did right. And I think that happens so often in organizations where there's these moments of fleeting brilliance, but 
people don't stop and grab onto them and hold onto them to ensure that they become a part of the fabric of the organization. And so I went back to the tapes and the hot dog and you know, I talk about this in the TED talk. It was three things, being present, meaning like slowing down enough to actually listen to the people around you. Two, not taking yourself too seriously, whether you're talking about brand. I think brands are so important. They're your bumper stickers to the world, but I think in some companies, brands become like, it's almost like those like sci-fi movies where the robots like take over the world. Brands, if a brand starts to tell you what you are not allowed to do to make someone else happy, someone that you care about, then the brand's role in your company has gotten out of control. Um, we can't let self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving the people around us the things that will bring them the most joy. And then three, this idea, you already said it earlier, if hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but a unique individual, as unreasonable hospitality is one size fits one. Um, and my team, armed with the hot dogs, our new true north, and then those three things as the roadmap, started doing so much cool stuff. And that is ultimately, that was the unlock that we needed. Yeah, I, I can see why it would be. Because really, you know, uh, I've eaten at a lot of, I'm, I'm a foodie. I've eaten at so many incredible restaurants and had so much amazing food in my life. But it's those moments where you connect. It isn't just about the food because I, I've always thought one of the things I love about great restaurants and I love about a casual great taco stand is it's theater. It's a theatrical moment in that it's just a little bit of a heightened reality from your normal day to day. You're in like 11 Madison Park, that room. My God, could you ask for a better set? You know, it is just the setting, the people, the music, the atmosphere, everything creates these moments. And I think, you know, what you all did is make it really personal. Yeah. And, and listen, like the theater of a taco truck or, or a restaurant, you're absolutely right. And if done well, that does a lot of the heavy lifting for you. But you have an opportunity to go even further two things I want to share. There's a, at the welcome conference, the general manager at the time of the Claridge's of Claridge's in London, Thomas Cox. One of his lines that will forever stick with me is that in the way they served people, they aspired to give them such significant memories that one day, if the person were to write an autobiography, that they would be featured in it. I mean, you think about like an audacious goal, right? Like we're going to blow your mind so hard that you are going to write about us in your autobiography. Um, so hold that over here for a sec. Um, people don't collect stuff as much anymore as they do now collect experiences. And so the opportunity, if you want to stand out from the pack is to give people a story that's good enough that they are inclined to tell it over and over and over again, a memory that will last a lifetime. And ultimately in doing so, ensure that your experience was one worth collecting. And if you can do these little or big gestures, the kind of things that people want to talk about, hey, not only are you like living up to the expectation that this is an experience worth putting in the whatever experience box that they have somewhere, 
Um, but man, you're also like mobilizing an army of, of marketers out there in the world for you. Because when you have a story like this, you just want to tell it over and over and over again. Every time I go speak to a big company, I always apologize to the marketing people in the room. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to like talk a little bit of smack about brands becoming too powerful. And I'm going to say that generosity is far more impactful than any dollar invested in traditional marketing. So I'm sorry in advance. I'm sure you're doing a great job, but I believe it. Oh, I agree with you 100%. Even when I work with brands, it always seems to come back to a conversation about how people are being treated and how they're being treated individual to individual. Because I love what you said about stories, because I guarantee the people that had that hot dog experience, those foodies, they've told that story hundreds of times over and over and over again. Yeah, it's so funny. I don't know. Like, I wish I knew who they were because I wonder if they've heard it now since I'm, the book is coming. Like, oh, shit, that was you would say, maybe, like, That was me. That was me. Yeah. You know, stories like that, I mean, you know, we're human and human beings, it's all about story. So I think that's the other thing that you all really unlocked is that 11 Madison Park and the service you gave and the way that you delivered it was extremely human, but it was just built on story. I mean, you you obviously get this as well as anybody, right? I mean, like, look at the name of the podcast we're on. Don Miller, I think, is also someone else who really grasps this idea. But, like, you think about the hot dog story. Just, like, let's be super meta about this whole thing. The reason that I think people are connecting with my book is there's plenty of books that have a lot of valuable insights. When I wrote the book... It was about hospitality, and so I wanted it to be inherently hospitable. And what I mean by that was not boring to read. And, and like, stories are the equivalent of, like, when I give my daughter, like, children's Tylenol or something, right? It's, like, sweet going down a little bit. Like, I talk about love languages in the book, but I think stories are our collective love language. Like it's always more engaging. It's always stickier. It's always easier to receive and understand and digest and reciprocate if important things are communicated through a story. I could have communicated the ideas about the hot dog story without the story itself, and it would not have gone nearly as far. Um, the moment you put a good story behind it, the number of people that you can reach and impact through whatever idea you're trying to convey is exponentially increased. I completely agree. You know, we all make all of our decisions, whether they're buying decisions or whatever decisions we make, we make them emotionally. We are very emotional beings. And then we think we're all logical and, you know, we're going to like measure everything perfectly. We're very emotional. And stories get us right in the feels. That's why... You know, collectively, we'll all talk about succession or we'll talk about Game of Thrones. Or we'll, we come together around either the simplest or the most outlandish stories. And I feel like you're a great storyteller. I mean, you are a natural storyteller. And I've, I've seen many of your talks and your TED Talk and so many appearances you've done. And you're just a natural storyteller and it's a gift. And I think that came through. I think that's really what was so magical about 11 Madison Park. Because several of the things you did and some of the examples that you that you put in your book, and by the way, everyone listening, go buy this book. This book is the best book I have read around brand and brand storytelling ever, really. It's my favorite now. I love it. I've given it as gifts. I love your book. But, you know, everything you did was a form of storytelling. 
So you know how you kind of figured out that moment around giving people the check? Yeah. And what you turned that into a story people would tell. Yes. And then the same thing as the parting gift that people would get when they leave. That's extraordinary. It's so brilliant. It's the most brilliant marketing I've ever heard of in my life. So can you unpack those for me? They're just little moments, but they're beautiful stories. When you go to a fancy restaurant at the end, in in most cases, you're given a little baked good. That was not anything new. Um, and, and we did the same in the beginning. We gave out cannelés. And cannelés, if you're listening to this, you've never heard of cannelés. They're a very technically difficult thing to bake perfectly. Um, they're delicious, but I, no one has ever woken up in the morning and said, you know what I'm really craving today? A cannelé. Um, and as we started shifting our focus towards hospitality, I looked at that and said, we're serving our egos here. This is more about us showing the people we're serving, look what we can do than it is giving the people we're serving something that they actually want or need, even if they don't want or need it. And, you know, the fancier we got, the more important it was to me that we found opportunities either within the meal or after the meal or just in the way we interacted with the world outside of the meal to show people that we didn't take ourselves too seriously. Um, that we were still a human-powered organization and not some temple to gastronomy. And so I looked at that thing, like, what are we giving away? And what could we be doing differently? And listen, at the end of a meal like that, you're full. You don't need more dessert. And the next morning, well, come on, you should not be having dessert for breakfast. And and yet I always wanted the experience to extend as far into people's lives as possible. And so we switched it to granola. And we made the most unbelievably good granola ever and... I really can't say you shouldn't be eating dessert for breakfast because it was not the healthiest granola, but it was really delicious. And it became this humble gesture that not only showed people we didn't take ourselves too seriously, but said, hey, you're going to wake up tomorrow. I don't know about you. I'm always pretty hungry after a big meal the night before. And, And that granola and how people, what people did with it at home with whatever fruit or yogurt or this or presentation was often the last picture on someone's Instagram slideshow of their meal. And the, the granola became famous. I mean, that, that became like one of the biggest things we did, far more famous than any sort of fancy French pastry ever could have become. The check was what I was talking about before, about like applying intention and creativity to the less likely touch points in the experience. And in doing so, take things that are either normally a negative part of the experience or an irrelevant part of the experience and make them significant. Um, and the check is a hard part of the meal for a bunch of reasons. Like people get impatient once they ask for it, you can't drop it on the table before they've asked for it. It's also the moment where they realize how much the whole thing costs. And so once we identified that as a touch point, we figured out collectively how to elevate it. And this is what we came up with. If I knew you were done, if I was pretty, pretty damn sure you weren't going to order anything else. We'd bring over a glass for each person at the table and a bottle of cognac and we'd pour a splash of cognac into each glass. Then we'd put the bottle on the table and say, this is with our compliments. I'm going to leave the bottle here. Help yourself to as much as you'd like. And then we'd put the check down and say, and your check is right here whenever you're ready for it. And it did a bunch of stuff. One, no one ever had to ask for the check again. Two, no one could ever think we were trying to rush them out. We'd just given them an entire bottle of free booze. Yeah, three, it was a gesture of extraordinary generosity. At the same time, they were seeing how much the, the meal cost. 
And four, it gave us that unfair competitive advantage because no one else had ever really applied that much creativity to how to put down the check and took that moment and made it like, gosh, the fact that like one of the things that people would remember most fondly about the meal in Madison Park is when they got the bill. Turning the bill into a story that someone tells, you know, giving them something they take home that becomes part of their life the next morning. I mean, it's brilliant. Oh, by the way, the granola, in the beginning, we did it in ball jars because I wanted it to feel very humble. Um, and then I kept on hearing or seeing, we did it in ball jars with a sticker on the top. And then people were keeping the jars. And so then we just made this gorgeous jar and spent kind of a, a stupid amount of money on it because if there was going to be an artifact of our restaurant in people's lives forever, like it would be a part of their kitchen pantry. I wanted it to be beautiful and, and stand the test of time. Yeah, I had Marcus Collins on recently talking about cultural moments and artifacts, you know, and you were creating little artifacts for people to take, you know, and systemizing these beautiful little moments, which were all basically stories. They're like little micro stories that people get to tell each other. They get to tell them what it meant to them. It's just such an emotional, amazing thing. So not to, I, I really don't want to dive into a ton of businessy talk in this because I think this is a beautiful conversation that I'm getting to have with you. But you had this 95-5 thing that you talk about that I think is right at the intersection of how do you systemize? How do you, how do you approach this as a company? And it connects to my, I think my favorite phrase I've ever heard that we now say around our office, grace notes, which I love. I love this so much. So can you sort of unpack that however you see fit? Well, yeah, the rule of 95.5 is, is honestly, it's just strategy, right? And it was just my financial strategy. And strategy is this big, fancy word that people, I think, don't think they understand. But strategy is actually not that complicated. It's just about choosing to be intentional about how you invest time and energy and resources um, with a desired outcome in mind. The rule of 95.5 is basically we... Um, manage our money like crazy people 95% of the time so that we can earn the right to 5% of the time spend it foolishly. I always need to be careful when people read the book because some of the better stories are the ones that sit in the 5% and they like get to the end of the book and forget about some of the 95% stuff and I always need to remind them like, hey, you don't get to do the 5% if you're not also doing the 95%. You need to be a scrupulous business person and make sure that you're minding every part of the business with the same amount of creativity that you're doing the stuff that you really have fun with. You need to find joy and creativity in every element of it to some extent or another. And so that means whatever it means for your business, whether it's watching expenses like a hawk, managing overtime, doing all that stuff. Um, so that 5% of the time you can spend foolishly. And foolishly is in quotes because it's actually that spending that results in the greatest connection, the biggest stories, the most lasting memories. Those granola jars fell into the 5%, right? But that was a daily reminder every time the owner of that jar went to put sugar in their coffee because that's where they went to store the sugar from that point forward had of our restaurant and the time they had with us and a nudge that maybe it was time to choose to come back. You have to earn the 5%, but once you have earned it, you need to be really creative in figuring out how you're going to spend it. 
That's beautiful. And it's so helpful. I think anybody listening, you know, you don't get to have the 5% or even have the time for the 5% if you're not really disciplined. Because an organization that can experiment like that and maybe take some wild swings and try some crazy things, you're there because of all the discipline behind the scenes. It's a well-oiled machine if you're starting to get granular about experience. And if you just want to do the 5%, that's not a business, that's a hobby. And so just, just know what you're doing going into it. Get a job and do that in your spare time and go have fun doing stuff for people. And I think you all, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot in the book about the Dreamweaver program and how you systemized all this. So I think when people read your book, I love the point you made about like what really sticks is some of these stories and they're very emotional. And I think they, they're very, they really appeal to us because it's so human, you know, and it's about love. There's so much love in your book, you know, and in theater, we are always taught in everything to find the love immediately, find it first. Has to do with brand, has to do with marketing, has to do with anything with human beings. Find the love. There is so much love throughout your book because you're always trying to get to that. Like, how do we communicate that to someone? How do we communicate to each other as employees and as managers? So I think, you know, I really encourage people to dig into the discipline throughout your book because I think that's the foundation of the success you had. Yeah. The the children's Tylenol doesn't work if all Frankie gets is the cherry flavor and not the Tylenol itself. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good. That's a perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I think I'd leave you with this. This is like how I'd leave people. The book is at its core about two things. It's one about being creative and intentional in pursuit of relationships. Um, the relationships of the people you work with, as well as those you serve and, and all the other stakeholders. And it's me saying with emphasis that I believe no matter what you do for a living, you can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry simply by being as unreasonable in pursuit of how you make people feel as you already are in pursuit of whatever product you're selling them. Um, and trying my best to encourage people to make that choice. Man, that's a, that is a mission. And I hope you stay on it and help as many people have that light bulb go off. Cause I really think that's what it's all about these days. I have one very last question for you that I ask every guest and it's a, it's a very common question, but I love to hear, I'd love to hear your answer. If you could go back learning everything you've learned now, what advice would you give to your younger self? I mean, my inclination is to say, I wouldn't like, cause what if I like back to the future stuff and I gave advice and it changed my whole trajectory and I'm really happy with how things have turned out. I think just maybe take a few minutes every once in a while and fully feel the moment you're in because I mean, it's almost trite how quickly these moments fly by and what I wouldn't give to be able to just sit back in a bunch of those moments and fully feel them a little bit more now. And I was always so driven and focused on what was next that I didn't always give myself the grace to appreciate the moment I was in. Well, that was a beautiful message to end on. And I think that applies to your book in a lot of ways too. You know, I think that's that sort of caring and that sort of being present for each other is the through line through your wonderful book. So, Will, thank you, man. I can't thank you enough. This was such a gift for me. Hey, this has been awesome. I loved the conversation, man, and I look forward to, uh, to being in touch. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app. 
so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story. Thank you.